Hello, gorgeous. Columbia Pictures is proud to present Barbara Streisand. Yeah? You're going to be a big star someday, Miss... Uh... Uh, Bryce, Fanny Bryce. In her Academy Award-winning film debut. The whole world will look at me and be... You mean I'm hired? I'm a Ziegfeld girl. That's exactly what you are. <sighs> I'm a Ziegfeld girl. You planning to make advances? Look, why don't we uh, get married? <laughs> Ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ticklish Business. I'm Kristen, joined, as always, by the wonderful and amazing Emily Edwards. Our newly minted Samantha Richardson is taking a bit of a personal leave, so she will not be with us today, but she is with us in spirit. We're going to have a great episode. We are talking about the 1968 William Wyler-directed Barbara Streisand starring Funny Girl in honor of Barbara's super duper long memoirs coming out. We have the wonderful and amazing Talia Lavin. Talia, how are you? I'm doing all right. Excited to talk about Funny Girl. When I found out you were a big Funny Girl fan, I was super excited to get you on to talk with us. But before we do that, We'd like to briefly remind everyone that if you haven't checked out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz, you should. We do additional bonus pods, including double features looking at remakes based on a true podcast looking at biopics and true crime and our new series. But have you read looking at film adaptations of popular books? We have an episode that we just released about Phantom of the Opera. We also give out regular care packages and movies and gifts and let you guess on an episode. It's at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Both Emily and I are authors. We have books out, as is Talia. You should order our books wherever you get books. And our Redbubble store has some fabulous art, all designed by Samantha, featuring your favorite stars, including our popular Makoko mugs, which you will want to get as we enter the holiday season. You can find that at ticklishbiz.redbubble.com. Now we're going to talk all about Barbara. Talia, I was looking through Twitter one day, whatever we call it now, and you were talking about Funny Girl. I don't know. I don't hear the constant funny girl discourse that I feel should always be present and accounted for. What is it about this movie that you love? I also saw the play on Broadway, but I saw it in a kind of a funny way. I saw it right between when Beanie Feldstein was Fanny Bryce and before Leah Michelle assumed her role. This was a Big Broadway news for nerds. What was cool was that the person I saw was the understudy. And she did the most amazing job. She was just fabulous, like so present, so amazing. And this fairy tale element of it, of sort of the understudy getting to play one of the most famous and iconic roles in all of theater really aided in the enchanting vibe. That's totally an aside. Then I went and rewatched Funny Girl again after and before. It's sort of a rags to riches story. It's a profoundly Jewish story, which I loved. The Jewish woman is actually played by a Jew, which is rare. It's a love story to Jewish Brooklyn in many ways, which is where my grandparents come from. And then, of course, Streisand is extraordinary. The songs are so good. It's a very special movie. I also really enjoy that Barbara Streisand gets to do so much physical comedy. Her physicality and mannerisms and comic timing are really excellent. And I think not necessarily, she always is a funny girl, but there's a real precision and joy in it that makes it magnetic to watch. True. I love that you got to see Julie Banco as 
Fanny Bryce on stage. I love Lee Michelle, but I would have loved the concept of letting her just take over the role and do the whole quasi all about Eve thing in a way. (laughs) I would have appreciated that. It's such a great movie that I know that when I saw production of Funny Girl, it was not Broadway. It was local theaters, so Sacramento level. And I was disappointed that it wasn't like the movie, which I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I wanted more of the film. We're going to talk about Streisand just dominating this role and being so synonymous with it in a second. The plot for people that have not seen this film is it tells the story of Fanny Bryce, played by Barbara Streisand, comedian and entertainer of the early 1900s. We see her rise from a Ziegfeld girl to becoming a star on Broadway, but Like any good woman in a film of this era, she can't have it all. She is in love with Nick Arnstein, played by Omar Sharif, who is a bit of a dissolute cad. Who doesn't love Omar Sharif in a frilly shirt? Emily, what is your background with this movie? I've seen it a couple times, obviously, having gone to a film school with a strong musical theater program as well. Unavoidable. Gotta watch it. I had family who was in performance arts in this time period in the early 1900s. I'm trying to think like the vaudeville performer had a couple uncles who were vaudeville comedians. And I always just really connected because I always thought that was so charming. And they were not famous or interesting in any capacity. I just am drawn to this storyline so much just because it's this really unique time period of performance where you could be nothing and something within a span of a couple weeks. And that's the wonderful charm of Fanny Bryce's entire career that she charms the right person and everything changes. It's the grand promise and myth of the performing arts that all you have to do is knock out the right person and you'll be a star. And it's just something very unreal, but very delightful about this entire story. And and man, Omar Sharif is beautiful in this. I mean, Barbara is gorgeous. And I understand the politics of her being in this But she's so beautiful. And then watching her and Omar Sharif be beautiful together. It's just so wonderful and delightful and romantic. And I just love it. For me, what I appreciate, this is the movie that I think not original, but it made me a real Barbra Streisand fan, especially of a lot of her early work. But it really cannot be understated, the fact that Barbara got to make this role her own. I mean, the script is credited to Isabel Leonard, who worked on the stage musical, but Barbara really did come in and cater the character to herself, which a lot of people were turned off by that this girl that just comes out of nowhere gets this as her first big break and then starts demanding the character work for her. But it really does also explicate why Fanny Bryce worked so well because it's got to be hard. Hollywood loved to do film versions of classic Americana performers. A lot of vaudevillians, you would get a lot of composer musicals in this time period. And it's hard to connect with that, especially the further and further you get away from vaudeville. Yet people our age watch this movie and it still has this freshness to it, even though it's about a vaudevillian of the 1900s. And I think that is because Barbara makes Fanny Bryce herself and Fanny Bryce is Barbara. It becomes this really weird intertwined thing to it. And the fact that Barbara had issues, people in Hollywood famously told her, you have to change your nose, you have to look different. And that was Fanny's struggle, the cursory research that I've done. But Barbara didn't want to make the character the butt of the joke. She wants to be in on it. 
that sequence with the wedding dresses where she's pregnant is her telling Ziegfeld, they're going to laugh at me because I'm not the most beautiful woman. So let me take that away from them and make them laugh with me. And I'm in on it. The whole way that Barbara dominates this film is very smart because it connects you to the character more so than if it had been anyone else. That's not to say that it always works. And we can talk about Funny Lady in a second. But at least for this film, it works very well. I will say Omar Sharif as a Brooklyn Jew is less persuasive. But like Emily said, he's so beautiful. You can't wave it away. Like, okay, sure. Also, they have such great chemistry. I also did a cursory read of some stuff about the movie. And apparently they did have an affair, a brief affair while they were shooting. I love it. Love to see it. You can definitely tell there's just like sparks between them, which really adds to the whole thing. And so that's fun to watch. Fanny Bryce was was a comic queen. I've listened to some of her radio recording stuff where she does funny voices. She is an extraordinary performer. Even now, the stuff she was doing way back is quite funny to listen to. That's awesome. And then Babs, she was also a legend among Jews, too. A performing Jewess would have really looked up to Fanny Bryce. And so that is just very cool. I imagine Barbara was playing one of her own idols in this movie. It's so rare when you go back and you listen to comedy bits from the early 1900s or the vaudeville era, and it's actually still funny. You go back sometimes and you watch like old Abbott and Costello movies, and you're watching this and you're going, why on earth did people flock to these movies and laugh as hard as they must have? I'm glad you said that you went back and listened to old Fanny Bryce bits. They are really funny. And they translate to 1968, which was a totally different time period when she was first performing. And now in 2023, these bits are still really funny. And that is unbelievable testament to both the performing aspects of Fanny Bryce, who presumably, I assume, wrote most of her material or at least had a hand in in crafting the material that she was putting out on stage or on radio to translating it to 1968 and translating it to now. At that level of timeless funny is so hard to do. And it's so impressive to watch this movie, my God, 50 years after it came out. It's just incredible. That's absolutely incredible. The awe that you have for Barbara translating this to fake stage to screen, just knowing just how much energy she had to put into this and how much she control she had over the character and her own performance. I know that she had a reputation after doing this of being difficult, as all women who have want control of their performances get that reputation. But it's like, good for her, be difficult. It is just one of those performances that will last for another 50 years of people always being in awe of how much she embodied the role of Fanny Bryce. Even if they don't know that Fanny Bryce was a real person, she is her in this movie, and it's incredible. The moment you get the sense that this is really a special and unique performance is during that first song where she's begging for a chance and doing these impressions. She's funny and she's aching, all of the things that a performer can be that is so wonderful. She really throws herself into the role and for all the control she may have exerted, none of it was about, I want to be more dignified than Fanny Bryce. It was, I want to get this right because there is a way that as a comic performer, you play with your own dignity and your own reputation and she does that so well. 
One thing that I love about this performance, you have brought up that it is a, she's a Jewish actress playing a very famous Jewish comedian and the specificity of the Jewish experience in vaudeville in the time and also in New York theater is really, really poignant and incredibly emotionally moving. And then also, if you want to translate it and watching it in 2023 of understanding of the definition of classical beauty and how you're not going to get parts if you're not classically pretty. I'm doing air quotes, even though I realize this is a podcast, you all can't see me. So much of that is in a dialogue that we're having now of people who don't fit white beauty in theater and film now. It's an incredibly timeless thing that so many performers go through of the molding and changing perspectives and definition of beauty and who is acceptable as beauty and who is acceptable as a performer. It's all right here over 50 years ago. Even now, you don't see a lot of people with big noses in film. We talked about this when we did our episode on The Way We Were. Barbara Streisand really was, and I don't like to use the term pioneer because somebody will inevitably say, actually, this person did it. But I do really think she was a pioneer in trying to tweak Hollywood beauty standards as much as she could. I mean, she's still an able-bodied, thin woman She's not breaking the mold completely, but for that time period where you have the late 60s, where you had your Sharon Tates and your Twiggies, she really is causing people to redefine what is beautiful so much so that when she could do the way that we were, she's opposite Robert Redford. And you're thinking she totally could get Robert Redford. Of course, they would be together. In this, what I appreciate so much is that She is aware of her flaws as a human, not just in terms of her aesthetic appearance, but in the fact that she's an over-talker and that she's boisterous. That's a lot of Barbara in a way. One of the biggest criticisms that I know from classic film fans when they watch this movie is that it's set in 1900 and Barbara's hair is clearly 1968, which is another issue that we would get with the way we were, where it's set in different time periods and Barbara always looks of the moment. But at the same time, the movie allows her to persevere. And I mean, Ray Stark, who was the producer of this, who brought this to the screen, was married to Fanny Bryce's daughter. So he wasn't going to ever make a hatchet job of his mother-in-law. But we all know there's a fair amount of artistic license that tends to come with a biopic. And there was a fair amount of artistic license that goes into this, like the fact that Fanny Bryce had already been married when she met Nick Arnstein. So she wasn't waiting to be Sadie, Sadie, married lady. She already was, and she'd already been divorced. The fact that her and Nick Arnstein lived together for six years, they lived in sin, and she did not take the first opportunity to divorce him when things went bad. She hung around. It took a while for her to decide to finally get divorced. If anything, thing, I applaud the movie and Barbara working in unison to make us as viewers question what we're willing to accept in a biopic. This is one of those movies where I learn about the inaccuracies of it and I don't care compared to other movies where if I find there is an inaccuracy, I'll be like, this is horrible. This needed to be included. This, I don't care what is not authentic to the real Fanny Bryce because of the way Barbara plays it and the way that the story both gives reverence to her, but also does acknowledge her flaws to a point. The whole ending of the movie when she performs My Man, which is one of the best endings, I think, in classic film history, is her pretty much saying, I am a flawed human. This guy is terrible, but I'll probably hang around just because I dig him. And I love that. I love that through song and these subtle characterizations, we allow her to be flawed. Who among us has not made a mess? of ourselves for someone we love. 
that's very human true. It's yeah. also a showbiz story. So what would it be yeah. if it wasn't a little bit embroidered? There's that aspect to it. Barbara's a sexy lady in this movie yes. and in everywhere else. She's also very funny. The songs are also really hard. Her vocal mastery is so amazing because I'm a shower singer or whatever. And like even just trying to get through some of her bravura songs from this film is incredibly challenging. They're really hard songs to sing. Every time I watch this movie, I try to see where Barbara breathes in Don't Rain on My Parade. And I am convinced that she does not breathe at all through the entire three minutes because I don't see it at all. And I know that new generation has grown up hearing Leah Michelle sing Don't Rain on My Parade from Glee and from her doing it on the show. And I always know where Leah Michelle's breathing. Barbara, nope. She does not exert a breath for the entirety of that song. And that's why she is a freaking legend. Yeah, it's so staccato. It's so intense. It's got all of these scales. And I'm not being very coherent at this moment in time. But I'm just explain music. Describing song stylings, if you're not a music major, is impossible. At least it is for me. So no, I got everything you said. Yeah, it's so postmodern. You can tell how much of it was influenced by Bernstein and that entire 1960s era of musicals where they were just like, we are limited to using a classical orchestra because they weren't using synthesizers or rock bands yet. That was going to come 15, 20 years down the line. But the fact that they are trying to break the mold of your expectations of orchestral music through the orchestration and the syncopation of the entire score. And it's so cool to really think of how much of that was done by people in the New York theater scene and people working in the most strict confines of what people would expect out of Broadway at the time. It's so groundbreaking to compare this and like West Side Story and other musicals that were coming out around the same time and the people who were making that music and the people who were strong enough vocalists to do something that was outside of their training and really just do a phenomenal job. I don't actually know off the top of my head who did the music for the musical, the movie. If you end up saying that it was some incredibly famous, I'll eat my hat, but they should be much more revered than they are. It's Julie Stein who did the score. So great American composer. What makes the musical work so well is that this is the real resurgence of the musical in American filmmaking, right? You saw it with West Side Story in 61. Musicals had never really went away, but they weren't really respected and they weren't getting the money and the production budget that they would get once West Side Story was a big hit. And then everybody returns to musicals with Sound of Music, Funny Girl, you got just a lot of them until Barbara supposedly single-handedly killed the musical with Hello, Dolly. I don't know if that's necessarily her fault. That's often considered the death knell of the musical. Talia, you having seen the Broadway version, I don't remember much from the story of the version that I saw. From what I've been told, Anne Francis, who plays one of Barbara's friends in this movie, who was a big actress in her own right, Anne Francis is awesome. She complained after this movie came out that in the musical, technically, she has just as big a role as this established actress that eventually becomes friends with Fanny, that her role was reduced because Barbara Streisand came in and wanted to focus more on Fanny and less on the Ziegfeld world. And I love Anne. I don't begrudge Anne Francis being upset at her reduced role, but the movie is already fairly lengthy. And I don't know if I necessarily needed more Ziegfeld ladies in this story. I'm okay with that change. 
in the play, nobody has as big a role as Fanny Bryce. It's a it's still a showpiece of Fanny Bryce. Maybe there's like a subsidiary Zigfield lady that has a bigger role, but I can't say that I recall it so vividly. It really stuck in my head, which isn't to discredit Anne Francis, a person I had hitherto never heard of, but it is a biopic and showcase for one lady. It is a fascinating and often sad story. I like what it says about how love can make you and break you and, and make you whole. And it is a love story and a coming up story. It's both and all of those things and does them all quite well. One plot should be enough sometimes. I get into this with other friends of mine when doing other shows. Sometimes the B plot, if it's not a good plot, it's going to take away from the overall effect of the movie. I've never seen the stage show. So if there is a bigger Zigfield girl B plot, hopefully it works on the stage. But the movie itself is strong enough as it is to just be about Fanny. I don't necessarily think like, ah, what are the other tap dancers doing when she's off smooching Mr. Arnstein? I don't care. I don't care at all. I only care about Fanny. That should be enough. I'm all for giving Fanny a sense of community, but I think she gets that outside of the Ziegfeld girls. I mean, she has her mother. I love the depiction of her home life in this, that all of the women get together and they're playing cards, that you really do feel that there is a sense of history. And that often doesn't happen in films where you feel that these people are all existing outside of the life of the film. Have you joined Ticklish Business Patreon? You should, just like Allie Moore, Amy Hart, Andrew Hoppy, Christine Meyer, Danny, David Floyd, Donna Hill, Jacob Haller, Jonathan Watkins, Kimma, Krista Painter, Mick F., and Rachel Clark. Listen to episodes 48 hours early, receive exclusive membership items, and even guests on an episode. You also get access to bonus features like Based on a True Podcast, Doubled Features, and our new limited series, But Have You Read That? It's all at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Back to the show. You assume that most movies begin and end when the credits start and when the credits end. But you do feel that Fanny Bryce has this home. Her mom is played wonderfully by Kay Medford. You get all of the women, Mrs. Strakosh, played by Mae Questel, who was actually the voice of Olive Oil. And you can immediately hear it in the way she talks. I love that. It's why when she brings Nick Arnstein to her home that first time, she's freaking out because she doesn't want him to be overwhelmed by the sense of activity that is happening without calling attention to it shows the dynamic of their relationship, which is that she is surrounded by people that care about her and that love her. He does not know how to interact with. He knows how to fleece a person, but he doesn't know how to spend time with a person. He's playing cards with all of her mom's friends, but he really just doesn't know how to be surrounded by people, which is why the performance of people after that is so intense. I know it's a love song, but I don't necessarily see it as a love between two lovers. It's the fact that we also do want to be surrounded by other people that love us, the sense of community, a sense of belonging, which I really appreciate. I love the fact that she brings Nick to her mother's saloon and she's not embarrassed by them. She just says, this is me. This is my entire community. We have deep roots. We have immigrant backgrounds. We are not wealthy. We have propped each other up. We have made each other. Even if I crash and burn on the stage, 
I will not be lost or forgotten or ruined because I have these people who love me, predominantly women who love me. And she's not embarrassed by them. She gets a little embarrassed or she's just like, oh, they're going to make you play poker. Oh, you're wearing a frilly shirt. Then we don't see frilly shirts. Oftentimes when you have people bringing their love interest into their home life, they're like, and I should be humiliated because you're going to save me from this embarrassing home life, this lesser than home life. And she's just like, no, if you don't fit in here, you can take a walk, even though you're gorgeous. Henry Street is really a character in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. The Brooklyn neighborhood, the tenement vibe, the immigrants making good stories, definitely a backdrop here. It's why I'm always intrigued by the casting of Omar Sharif in this film, because historically, we all know that Hollywood was very racist, very much against any type of implication of relationships between people that are not of the same race. And even though Omar Sharif is Egyptian, you understand that he is definitely not American born. And yet the movie doesn't call attention to that. The audience may be aware of where Omar Sharif is born. It is interesting. Omar Sharif is an actor that he really was able to transcend not being stuck in Lawrence of Arabia parts. He became this really dashing leading man and played in so many different genres of films. He has such, as Talia mentioned, such an easy chemistry with Barbara. Of course, they were definitely sleeping around, which good for everybody involved, in my opinion. He really does make Nick Arnstein a character you hate to love because like any great love story, right? Just like the way we were. You want these two people to figure their out so that they can be together, especially him. He has more to deal with. What I always find fascinating about their dynamic, because we've seen it in other films like Love Me or Leave Me with Doris Day and James Cagney, is the fact that he struggles with his sense of masculinity in this film and his sense of purpose. There's a scene where they, they call him Mr. Bryce. And he does not like it. He doesn't like the guy offering him a job. And he says, well, did Fanny ask you to ask me? He really does struggle with his place in this world, which would only become more paramount as second wave feminism starts to become a thing in the 1970s. But it never overshadows Fanny's plot. It complements it because she is also forced to reconcile with how do I make my husband feel like an individual? Not necessarily how do I make him feel like a man, but how do I make him feel like a person when he is the one that is never going to be as important to culture as I am. And I love that. I love that we get that complexity without, again, belaboring the point. I will say it's also depressingly still relevant. Women who out-earn their husbands and how that's a turnoff for said husbands. That's still something you would read about on a daily basis if you were so inclined. We're seeing Um, it in movies still. I mean, if you've seen Fair Play, that's essentially the entire plot of that movie. Yeah. And it's this idea that if your wife excels you in any fashion, you are emasculated, which is so depressing. It's just like, okay. The ways that then as a successful woman, you become the more career success you attain as a woman, the less you're are considered feminine in certain ways. It's the Stanley Tucci adage in Devil Wears Prada, where your job's going good, then your home life is horrible. Women aren't allowed to have both. Yeah. And it's this grotesque creature finally found love. (laughs) I'm wrong, but I remember, you know how in the movie, he comes home and he's gambled away their house. She's poking at it and she's going like, 
did you lose the house? And he's finally like, yeah, I lost the house. And she doesn't nag him. She's not upset about it. She's just kind of like, whoops, a daisy. We'll do better next time. And she's just very blase about it. And she's just like, this is the man I married. It's fine. And then it's later on in the movie where he's really losing his shirt. He's not coming up aces at any point in time. People tell her she has to fix it because she's his wife. And that's when everything goes wrong. I might be completely misreading this or misremembering it. For the majority of the movie, she's just like, I married a gambler. Sometimes we're up, sometimes we're down. It happens, but I'm going to keep doing my thing. He's going to keep doing his thing. His thing is just volatile than mine. But then when people start to point out that she has to meddle because she's his wife, she has to be there to fix things because she's his wife, and she does, that's when it all goes wrong. That's when the wheels come off. That really says a lot where it's like, no, she accepted that her husband was going to lose bank all the time and lose her money. And it's fine because she was loved him. That's who he was. That's who she married. She knew who she got in bed with, literally and figuratively. And it wasn't until everybody else had feelings about it that things changed and she lost her marriage. Her mom says, love him less and help him more. It's a real 1900s concept. And yet at the same time, women have been presented as having to fit. We still do it, right? We have to apologize and fix the issues created by men. We see that on a global stage in so many different ways. What I notice about the demise of the relationship kind of starts when he misses her premiere. Yeah. That he shows that he doesn't care. But then also, I think there becomes a point in the movie. They have a child. She's working her tail off. It's the expectation of wanting someone to grow up. At Mm -hmm. what point are you going to stop these things? That's the big thing that I noticed. The heart and soul of this movie for me is that listening to Don't Rain on My Parade and why it's such a banger and sort of the crux of the tragedy is that this is a woman who is not going to be modest in her desires for love. This is a woman who is take the universe by the testes and demand of it. I want to be loved completely. I want to be loved for who I am. I want all of it. I'm not going to accept an inadequate love. That is so radical in a quiet way. Loving immoderately, loving with your whole self, loving and refusing to repress who you are in the process is this fatal flaw. You bring up a good point. We see all facets of love in this relationship including sexual. I am shocked every time I watch this movie at how overt it is in the knowledge that Nick and Fanny are definitely having sex. The whole performance of You Are Woman, I Am Man, which Omar Sharif is not the best singer. He's not Pierce Brosnan level bad, but he certainly ain't great. It's a sex song, pretty much. The way it's being performed is Barbara, one of her funniest for me is where she doesn't know what he's ordering. And she says, well, if I don't know what you're ordering, how am I going to know if you're making advances? It's both hilarious and sexy as hell. So often love scenes in movies, especially contemporary films, are so polished. Everybody knows what to do. Everybody reads consent without having to say consent. And this is a sequence that shows the awkwardness of what are we doing? When is it okay? Am I in danger? Or am I into this? It's so fascinating for 1968, especially as the code has crumbled. Movies are able to be more open about sexuality, but the studios were not embracing that with open arms. And I do think that this is definitely a groundbreaker in terms of saying, no, these two are definitely 
not married and they are going to be having sex. They literally are just kind of like, you know, that myth that nobody had sex before marriage before 1970? Absolutely false. These people were banging and it's great. (laughs) I mean, it's not about the sexiness necessarily, but I truly love that line where he orders pate like in the smooth way. And she's like, oh, it's just chopped liver. Yeah. Oh, it's just chopped liver. She's very taken by his suavity and his charm and turned on by it. But then also it's like she's still Fanny Bryce and that's not going to change. One of my favorite things about that line specific, and also I would just order roast beef and potatoes, is that a lot of people, when you come from not wealth and you start meeting people who are wealthy and they have what is finer things, you are terrified that the things that you like are not what is acceptable in the fancy, fancy people. And she's just like, oh, you're not different from me. You might have a lot of money, but it's just chopped liver. Oh, oh, this is great. We can get along because I know exactly what you're ordering. You're not any different from me. And then she's like, so let's get to it. Also showcases the demise of their relationship in a certain way. She thinks that he is very cultured and very elegant. And he's really not. He just makes it sound pretty. And so at the end, When he is in this jam and he can't get out of it, just the way that they look at each other is so heartbreaking because she is aware that that's really just who he's been this entire time. He's not really a guy that knows what he's doing, that is ultra intelligent and ultra sophisticated. He just has always put on a frilly shirt. He's always got a facade. There's always been a front. That breaks my heart. But at the same time, it does showcase Fanny's transition away. She never really was a naive person, but that belief that because somebody is wealthy or at least has the appearance of it, so that must mean that they are better, really is undone. To her, he's the essence of sophistication, but when he attains that role for her, she's also explicitly quite naive as a person. Take it with a grain of salt, but you can also see like, she's like, oh my God, he's so dishy. To me, what makes this movie so transfixing, and I guess I'm repeating myself, is just this notion of as a woman, every societal convention is that you be moderate in your expectations, moderate in your desire, moderate in everything you do, that femininity is about self-denial. This movie is very much a story of someone who refuses that pretty completely, who's just like, absolutely not. No, I refuse to be someone who makes myself and my desire small. She's this huge star. She's in love with her dream boat. She's not gonna let go of either of those things. And her crime, her great crime is just loving him so much and wanting him and needing him. That's such a relatable, lovable, I don't know. That's something that sadly is still incredibly relevant in the modern day. And just the exhilaration of having a heroine who's like, I see your social expectation and I reject it. I won't do that. And her absolute confidence in her talent from moment one is so incredibly charming. I have to admit that watching this movie and watching that scene where she tells Mr. Ziegfeld no, it made me confront a lot of things about how I interact with people of power because it made me so uncomfortable. What are you doing? Why are you telling him no? Why are you arguing with Mr. Ziegfeld? You're going to get thrown out. Of course, I understand that that's the point of the scene, but I was feeling it to my guts. How dare you? You're a nobody and you're telling Mr. Ziegfeld no. It made me really realize just how 
much I interact with people who have power over my career and my creative expressions of things. Wow, I need to really learn to stand up for myself because this is ridiculous of how uncomfortable that scene just into my guts. I was getting an upset stomach. That's a really interesting thing that we talk about women in the workplace of any workplace, how often we just bend over backwards and we work overtime and we're the ones who make the coffee and we're the ones who take the notes and we're the ones who clean up everything. And I was having a real honest panic attack during that entire scene. And the fact that it just, it works out for her. She gambles and it, and it works and she is everything and she knew it is a really terrifying and poignant scene for me. But as a creative person, I just, oof, this movie and Barbara doing it is everything. It's one of the things that makes the sequel so reviled. Seven years later, she would do a sequel called Funny Lady, which she did not want to do. She was contractually bound to do one more movie for Ray Stark, and she said, you'd have to sue me to get me to do it. They didn't sue her, but she liked the script enough, and it follows Fanny in her later years when she eventually marries Billy Rose, the impresario played by James Caan, which is a glow-up if you ever looked at what Billy Rose actually really looked like. I've seen Funny Lady once. I did not like it. The issue that I had with it, it's got some fantastic, very mid-70s musical performances, they're very stylized and very over the top, far more so than this, because the sequel is far more fictionalized about her second relationship or her third relationship. It takes away that groundedness and that ability to identify with Fanny as a person. You don't believe she exists in the sequel because everything is just so big. Everything is so gaudy and there's more A-list stars and the costumes are way more 70s than they are mid-1900. To lose all that is to really just make Fanny feel less like a human and more like a character. And we don't want to identify with characters. We want to identify with characters that remind us of elements of us. That's my kiss against Funny Lady. I didn't even know there was a sequel. You don't need to know. Just keep going in the blissful ignorance of not knowing that there is a sequel with Barbara and... James Caan. Omar Sharif shows up, I think, for like a scene and shows up and he's like, hey, I'm moving. She's like, cool, I'm going to hang out with the guy from The Godfather. And he's like, cool. Any hit songs for Funny Lady? Because I can't name one off the top. It says that it was nominated for Best Actress for Barbara Streisand and Best Actor for James Caan. I am shocked by that. It does not look like the songs are best remembered. If anything, most people remember the Bob Mackie gowns. I, I mean, again, the, Bob Mackie gown. The production design is fantastic. It's unimpeachable, but the movie is trash. I do want to bring up the Oscars really, really quick. This was nominated for eight, including Best Picture. In case anybody's curious, the Best Picture nominees that year were Rachel Rachel, Paul Newman's directorial debut, Oliver, Funny Girl, Romeo and Juliet, and The Lion in Winter. Does anybody want to guess what won? Lion in um, Winter? I'm betting on Shakespeare. Was it Bad Oliver? Food? It was Oliver, yes. Right. <laughs> it was Oliver, which it went to a musical, just one that is not beloved. We've never talked about Oliver. I've never seen Carol Reed's Oliver. Maybe somebody listening to this episode can make an argument that Oliver deserved to win that best picture. I'm going to say it did not. It's the Dr. Doolittle win all over again. Barbara Streisand did win, though, for Best Actress. She did tie with Catherine Hepburn, though, for Say With Me Now, The Lion in Winter. And honestly, fair. If you've seen The Lion in Winter... Maybe we'll do that one Christmas. It's fantastic. Kay Medford also got nominated. Harry Stradling Sr. got nominated for Cinematography. It was also nominated for Sound Editing, Best Original Song for Funny Girl, and 
musical score. So super beloved and still going on today. I mean, Beanie Feldstein's not in the role, but the musical is still just as beloved as it was when it came out. I love the movie. Barbara's fantastic. It would define a lot of her roles going forward in good and bad ways, but it's a fantastic movie. And Omar Sharif is just hot. It's upsetting, actually. They're both hot. Anna and Francis didn't think that she got a ton of screen time in this movie, but even she's hot in those big, broad-brimmed hats that they all wear with feathers in them. Emily, final thoughts on Funny Girl? Wait, break back those hats. The costume design of this movie is so fascinating because, like you said, it seamlessly blends from 1910 to 1968 with the hair and the nails and the turtlenecks and the jewelry. I really, really enjoy watching this movie because Barbara's so sexy. She's just so in it. And she knows how good she is. And I love a performance from someone who just is like, I'm going to win a damn Oscar for this. And they just do it. That is something that actually is lacking quite a bit. Like when Anne Hathaway was like, I'm going to win an Oscar and everybody crapped on her for 10 years. Why can't people have confidence in their own abilities and performances? I'll dial that back. Why can't women have confidence in their own abilities and performances? And Barbara does. And Barbara delivers. And that should be the legacy forever. Talia, take us out. What are your final thoughts on Funny Girl? Not to repeat myself too much for your audience, what makes this a timeless story and makes it worth revisiting, both as a stage play and as this extraordinary movie, is the rarity and the beauty of woman loving both her lover and herself with total abandon. Just how inspiring and rare and amazing it is to witness a woman making these demands of the universe when she's standing on that ferry, she's got her arms out to Staten Island and the world, really saying one shot, just one shot. That's all I need. Here I am. Just how unbelievably charming that is and still rare. We should all be able to ask for what we want. The charm and melancholy of this movie, which ultimately is, despite the title, more of a tragedy than a pure comedy, is that sense of how rare it is for a woman to demand what she wants and get it and take it. And then she can't keep it because it's somehow forbidden to want that much. It makes us both celebrate femininity and also question why in 2023... We're still talking about the same thing. Let us know what you think about Funny Girl, Barbara Streisand, the fact that Barbara's memoirs are 962 pages long. You can email that to us at ticklishbiz at gmail.com or send it to us on all social media platforms. I'd like to thank Talia Laven again for joining us. We appreciate you so much. Feel free to let listeners know where they can find you and your work online, anything you have upcoming that you want to plug. You can find my writing primarily at my Substack, The Sword and the Sandwich, where every Monday I write a column about U.S. politics. And every Friday I write a column about a different sandwich from Wikipedia's list of notable sandwiches. And every Sunday I write about a cultural product of some kind. So I've had a run of Halloween columns and um, did a big 
Christopher Lee movie marathon. Taste the blood of Dracula, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, an eye monster. And sort of wrote about that. And Wicker Man, my favorite musical of all time. Great, great, great film. Possibly the best film ever made. My second book is not coming out until next year, but I wrote a book called Culture Warlords that is about neo-Nazi communities online. I'm against them. It's a big old bummer. People still tell me that it's help them understand the cultural moment we're in now. I recommend it. If you like my voice, I read the audiobook. What a pleasure to talk about Funny Girl. That closes out Ticklish Business for today. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get podcasts. Reviews matter. We haven't gotten one in a minute. Please consider leaving us one on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. You can follow the podcast on all social media, on Twitter, because I'm not calling it an X, at Ticklish underscore biz, as well as on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Ticklish Biz. You can follow me at the TheRap.com as well as on all social media at Kristen Lopez 88. Emily Edwards is also on all the medias at Ms. Emily Edwards. Our Patreon helps keep the lights on at Ticklish Biz HQ and gives us chances to do new content like our latest episode of But Have You Read on The Phantom of the Opera. We also just did an episode of Double Features on The Mummy. So consider helping us at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. We both have books out as well. You can order them wherever you buy books. We will be returning with a new episode on November 22nd, honoring Piper Laurie in The Hustler. Till then. 